In John chapter 3, we read about Nicodemus, one of these Pharisees, coming to Jesus at night and saying to Jesus, we know that you came from God. But before he even asks a question, Jesus tells him that he and everyone else must be born again if they want to see the kingdom of God. Now, the Pharisees really wanted to see the kingdom of God. This was probably their main thing. But they misunderstood the meaning. They didn't, they didn't grasp what it meant for the kingdom of God to come. They thought that it just meant physical freedom from the Romans, who currently ruled them. And so, Nicodemus is confused by Jesus' statement, shocked even. And this morning, we're going to continue further into the teaching that Jesus gives Nicodemus after this statement that he must be born again. And what we're going to see is that Jesus focuses back in on belief now. We've seen that this is a theme all through the book of John, continues to be a theme now in this little mini-sermon that Jesus gave to Nicodemus. So Jesus focuses on belief, helping us to understand better what we need to believe. So now we're setting up, we're continuing to set up the contrast between true belief and the false belief that the crowds had in the previous chapter. So Jesus makes clear to Nicodemus exactly what he needs to believe, relating it to the work of the Holy Spirit, much the same way that Paul does in the book of Romans. Okay, now this is, this is not the typical place that you would go to uh, get a proof of Reformed theology. And yet, it's so fundamentally a part of what Jesus is saying, that God is sovereign in the work of salvation, that you can't help but realize that this is part of what's going on when Nicodemus is shocked. Part of what's going on in the offense of what Jesus says at the beginning, and that we can't separate what Jesus says at the beginning to Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit being the one who we must be born by, and at the end, where Jesus is talking about the necessity of our belief. In other words, what we see this morning is Jesus responding to objections that you and I still have on the topic of fairness and God's salvation. And this is a perfect fit with the celebration of Christmas and Advent. Because the real question is, why did Jesus come? So please stand for the reading of God's word. From John chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So at the beginning of our passage, what we see is that God's Holy Spirit is the one that gives us new birth. New birth is not something that we can accomplish on our own, not something that we can do to ourselves. To be regenerated must happen externally as an act upon us, right? Just as... We can't give birth to ourselves the first time, nor can the second birth be something that we give to ourselves. But rather, we must be born of the Holy Spirit. So Nicodemus is shocked, possibly even offended, by this statement of Jesus. He says, how can these things be? Verse 9. Jesus had compared it to the wind. This is something that comes upon us unexpectedly, makes an effect, and is gone. We see the effect externally acted upon us by an invisible force, right? which is not to limit the Holy Spirit to some sort of mystical force, but to make it clear that the Holy Spirit is the one that is acting. The force comes externally upon us, not from within, the the power for change. Nicodemus 
does not understand and is in disbelief. And Jesus begins to find fault with Nicodemus, saying, you're a teacher, and you don't understand this? Jesus says he can't even convince him of earthly things, much less heavenly things. Well, this is the problem that Nicodemus had had, that he, that he thought that salvation was entirely earthly, that the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Promised One, was an earthly promise. When in point of fact, the Messiah was an earthly and a heavenly promise, a physical and a spiritual blessing, right? But certainly not limited to the kingdom in the sense that the Pharisees understood it. And so Jesus is saying, look, even the earthly, you're not understanding. How can I explain to you the heavenly as well? Verse 10 is where he begins this rebuke. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus' testimony is not only true, this is the second time now that he has said truly, truly to Nicodemus. First time isn't in our passage this morning. It's right at the beginning of Jesus' response near the beginning of the chapter. But truly, truly is meant to shake us out of our lazy thinking, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Jesus is an expert witness. Why? Well, because of his knowledge. He's saying, I'm an, I'm an eyewitness to these things. I know exactly what I'm talking about. And then he goes on. He claims to be the only ever eyewitness. Not just someone who knows the truth, of which there are many people who are witnesses for Jesus Christ today, right? But what he claims about himself, in verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I came down from heaven. No one else has ascended into heaven except me, the one who came down, the eyewitness that's speaking to you right now, the expert witness. I know what I'm talking about. 
Truly, truly, I say to you. Don't you dare ignore me, Nicodemus. You just got done saying that clearly I'm from God because of the signs. Listen to what I'm saying. And then what does Jesus do? He begins to teach Nicodemus heavenly things. Now, let me just pause right here and say, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that condescending on the part of Jesus to stoop to the level of Nicodemus? And even in his rebuke of his unbelief or his refusal to understand, his inability to understand even the earthly things, and how could he possibly teach him heavenly things? But then he begins to teach him the heavenly things of which he is the expert witness. What a sweet, sweet example Jesus is to us of patience right here. Be patient in your conversations with people. Don't give up. Continue on into the next point. The more important things that they need to hear and understand. And so Jesus begins teaching him these heavenly things anyway. And what does he say? He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, speaking of himself, the Son of Man. He says, Jesus, I am going to be lifted up like the snake in the wilderness. So what was the snake? Well, if you remember, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were in the wilderness, and... God was displeased with them, and he sent fiery snakes among them, and when they got bit, they would die. And so the people turn to Moses, and they say, Moses, help! And God responds, Moses then turns to God and says, God, help! And God responds by saying, make a snake of brass, raise it up on a pole, and the people who look at the snake will be saved. Right? And so Jesus compares himself to this snake, saying, I'm going to be raised up. Now his reference that he's speaking of there is being raised up on the cross, at his crucifixion, is when this happens. And we could spend a number of weeks just on the uh, symbolism and prophetic witness of this event in the history of the Jews, where the stakes came and how Jesus relates to the snake that's raised up, the snake of brass that Moses makes that saves the people. Um, and we could, we could learn lots and lots just from that one 
little statement that Jesus says, I must be raised up. But we'd have to go back and actually look at the Old Testament passage and be preaching on that to really see the, see the entirety of it. So we're not going there this morning. Um, but I do want you to see that this snake that's raised up, the, the thing that's most important for you to realize in this context is that the people had to believe that the snake was their hope. They had to look to the snake in order to be healed from the bites. Okay? And this is the same thing that Jesus is driving at here because he's just been talking about belief and the connection to the promise of salvation or seeing the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you must believe in him in order to be saved. If you refuse to look to Jesus Christ, you're left in the same state as those Jews that refused to look to the snake that God provided through Moses that saved the people who looked to the snake. Refusing to look to Jesus in belief is a guarantee of death. Do you understand that? If you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are guaranteed death and hell at the judgment. So at this point, we see that in verse 15, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Right? Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And the, the rest is left unstated, but is so clearly understood from the context of the story Those that refused to look to the snake died. Those that refused to look to the Son of Man die in their transgressions. And then you come to this verse 16, John 3, 16. Probably most of you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a beautiful promise. It's a promise of hope. It's a promise of forgiveness and life. And what it is, is it's an explanation of what's going on. Why is Jesus here? Why is he going to be raised up? What's going on here? Well, the explanation is God loved the world. It is the love of God in heaven that brings about this good news. 
It is the love of God in heaven that caused him to send his son, the son of man who descended out of heaven. And all that is necessary is that you believe in him. All that's necessary. And yet, we just saw in the previous chapter that the crowds believed and Jesus said to himself, basically, nah, they don't believe. So what's going on? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, belief. What's necessary to receive the salvation that's talked about? Belief. Belief that you can get that salvation from only Him. So that's belief in Him. But the thing is, you have to be looking to Him for that salvation. Do you see? This is the distinction between those who will on that last day say, but Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. How could somebody do these things and not believe? Well, because what they are believing in, what they are believing for, is not what Jesus came for. What is this perishing that Jesus talks about being saved from? Well, he goes on and he explains it. Right, got verse 16. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Perish when? Perish in the judgment. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he, does not, he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So what are we saved from? What we are saved from is loving evil deeds. What wonderful news. What more could you want? 
but any other belief other than that, that you're being saved from your evil deeds and from your desire for evil deeds, from a desire to remain in the darkness rather than to be in the light, any other belief is false belief. Any other claim on the name of Jesus Christ is a claim that he has not authorized. Do you understand? He did not come to earth in order that we might be saved from hurt feelings. He did not come to earth and die on the cross in order that we might be saved from poor choices and mistakes. He did not come to earth and die in order that we might escape from physical sin, from from the physical consequences of our own sins and the sins of others. In other words, he did not come and die so that you can be healthy and wealthy and happy. He came to bring peace on earth. He came to bring joy, not happiness. Do you understand the difference? Of course, Joy includes happiness, right? But happiness on its own, happiness on its own is, you know, oh, hey, I got that, I got that awesome $1,000 quadcopter for Christmas with a camera and the mount and everything. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Or, you know, happiness alone is, hey, you know, my... My children, they, they're so smart, and they made it into the best school. And, yeah, this is, this is the thinking that it's so tempting for us to, to have about Jesus, even at Christmas time, right? Oh, yeah, Jesus came into the world, and he was born, and so we celebrate it with gifts because he was an amazing gift. And the gift that he gave was the gift of giving, And so, here we are, we're all giving each other what we love more than anything else. Money, and things, and possessions, and happiness. But this makes no sense with what we heard this morning in Luke 2. It makes no sense with Jesus teaching to Nicodemus. This is an unauthorized claim on the name of Jesus Christ. And the response on the day of judgment will be, Away from me, I never knew you. And in consequence, you never knew me. And then we have that conflict 
that conflict in our minds of, but that's not fair. Our understanding of fairness jumps up like it does at Christmas time when she got three presents and I only got one. As if somehow we are the judge of God and what he has decided to do. And I think this is part of what Nicodemus is scandalized by and what Jesus had said. Wait a minute, the Holy Spirit? How can that be? I've been working my whole life to be good. And now you're saying that the Holy Spirit has to give me new life? I have to be reborn by the Holy Spirit or it's all useless? That's not fair. All the fun happiness that I've given up in life to be good, I could have just been bad. That's a lot happier, a lot more fun. And so Jesus begins to teach him heavenly things. He says, it was the love of God that caused him to send his only begotten son. It was the love, the love of God. He so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, is God contradicting himself when, when he says the nations will be judged, that Jesus will sit on the throne, that he will be the one judging and saying, to those on his right, enter into my eternal peace that I've prepared for you. And to those on his left, depart from me into the pit of hell. And here where it says God did not send him into the world to judge the world, that the world might be saved through him. No, God isn't in contradiction with himself here. The word of God is not confusing even. If you just pay attention right here, what's going on, what Jesus is saying is, look, this is not bad news that the Holy Spirit is able to give you new life, rebirth. Okay? This is good news. It comes out of the love of God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, not out of the hatred that he has for his enemies, but out of the love that he has for the world. Why? Well, because apart from God sending his son into the world, the justice that we would all receive 
is death and condemnation and hell. This is a positive thing for the whole world, the saving of those who believe. Otherwise, it would have just been the last judgment with no savior between us and God, no righteousness to claim as our own, no one to take our sins and bear them on our behalf. And all that is necessary is that you believe in him. On the other hand, refusing to believe means you've already been judged for your disbelief. So is it fair? You can't believe unless the Holy Spirit gives you new life. Unless you've been born again. And yet if you don't believe, you're condemned. What Jesus says is, it was the love of God that caused him to send me. Not so that condemnation would come, but so that salvation would come. Condemnation is already here. The sin is already in existence. Death and hell are already the reality for all of mankind, except for what? Except for the fact that God loved the world enough to send his only begotten son, that some might be saved. It's good news. He who believes in him is not judged. That's the, that's the good news. He who believes in him doesn't have the condemnation any longer. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And so we say, but Jesus, but God, it's not fair. They can't believe unless your Holy Spirit gives them newness of life, unless this wind, this spirit, this breath of God comes and gives them new life, unless they're reborn. 
And Jesus says, the light came into the world and men preferred the darkness. Their condemnation is just. They loved their evil deeds. What would you have God do to men who love their evil deeds? Say, oh yeah, you know, I know he likes torturing people, but it's not really his fault. Really, it's, it's my fault. No. He loves his evil deeds. The punishment of God's wrath being poured out on him is just. For God not to pour out his wrath is for God to deny his only begotten Son. It is to make the sacrifice of Jesus Christ pointless. It is to deny the necessity of his death. It is to reject the good news. Paul goes into this more in the book of Romans, bringing out this contrast between what we think is good and right and fair. It's just inescapable, this conflict between us and our feeble minds and our wicked inclinations of our heart and God and his holiness and righteousness and his wrath. But the good news is that even that sin of thinking little of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, thinking it's of little necessity and little importance, even that sin is able to be forgiven. And all you have to do is believe. Believe what? Believe that actually it was necessary for him to come. Actually, the only way you can be saved is by looking to him. Believe that he is your only hope in life and in death. As Christians, do you want your deeds hidden?
depends on whether they're good or bad, doesn't it? A lot of deeds we want hidden. But are they are they hidden? Are they hidden from God? No. No, they're not hidden from God. And do we really want them hidden? Do we really want to pretend like God doesn't know? No, what we want is we want even those deeds dragged into the light. And we want our good deeds shown. Not because we're proud, not because we think we're so good, but because we want God's name to be glorified in our good works. We don't want to be like the Pharisees who do their good deeds in order to be seen before men so that they themselves might be glorified. What we want is we want our good deeds to be seen and to demonstrate to all the love that God had for the world in sending his only begotten son. We want people to see that we're sinners so that they can see our sins washed away. So that they can see that there is hope for any who believes. Not so that they think that good people can be saved, but so that they know there are no good people. but that by the power of Jesus Christ, though our sins are as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. The light is stronger than the darkness. Don't let our desire for our deeds to be hidden. Turn us to unbelief. Walk by faith. Remembering that Jesus Christ came down, was raised up on the cross, and that's where we look to him for our sins to be forgiven. And then was confirmed in that work through being raised up after his death on the third day. And that's why we gather here this morning on Sunday rather than Saturday. The third day after he died, he was raised. And so we celebrate. We celebrate the fact that Jesus came. It's Advent, it's Christmas time. Is it good news? Never better.